Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival. My guest on this episode is Frederick Wiseman. He's made 41 nonfiction films in the past 50 years, but never got comfortable with the word documentary. Well, it's all bullshit. Uh, I mean, what's wrong with the word movie? I mean, I think I make movies. Before making movies, Wiseman was briefly a law professor in his hometown, Boston. Each year, he would take students on a field trip to the Bridgewater State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. He decided the institution would make a good location for a film. That became Titty Cut Follies, named after a musical review that inmates perform at the hospital. This is a theater of the absurd, with little hope for escape. Here's an exchange between a doctor and a patient. Well, Vladimir, as I promised you before, if I see enough improvement in you... But how can I improve if I'm getting worse? I'm trying to tell you, day by day, I am getting worse because of the circumstances, because of the situation. Now, you tell me, uh, how can, uh, until you see an improvement, each time I get worse. So, obviously, it's the treatment that I'm getting or the uh, situation or the, or the place or the, or, the, or the patients or the inmates. Well, I, don't, I do not know which. The film's bleak portrayal and underlying dark comedy caused a sensation that turned into a legal battle when Bridgewater officials got a court order to block its distribution in 1967. The case dragged on for many years until Wiseman prevailed. This year, Titty Cut Follies marks its 50th anniversary. His follow-up in 1969 is High School, set in Philadelphia at a time when the generation gap was widening. Viewers will remember this student who pleads his case to a disciplinarian. You know, they brought me in the detention room. Uh, They brought me into Mr. Walsh's room, and they got me dragged in for nothing. And I tried to explain to him, and he says, will you take a detention? Which was utterly ridiculous. I see we're out to establish something, aren't we? Yes. We're out to establish that you can be a man and you can take orders. We want to prove them that you can take the orders. Mr. Rowan's safe. It's all against my principles. You have to stand for something. Yes, but I think the principles aren't involved here. I think it's a question now of of, uh, proving yourself to be a man. It's a question here of how... How do we uh, follow the rules and regulations? If there's a mistake made, there's an approach to it. Following the rules was a loaded statement when the Vietnam War was making more people challenge authority. Wiseman's next films were Law and Order, about the Kansas City Police Department, Hospital, set in New York City, and Basic Training, about soldiers at Fort Knox in Kentucky. Those depictions of institutions often felt like cautionary tales. Fast forward to this decade, since he turned 80 in 2010, Wiseman has released six films. They profile institutions that feel more positive than his early work. The three most recent are At Berkeley, taking place at the University of California, National Gallery at the Museum in London, and In Jackson Heights, filmed in the multi-ethnic neighborhood of Queens. His latest is called Ex Libris, the New York Public Library. It's premiering at the Venice and Toronto Film Festivals 
before opening at New York's Film Forum in September. Wiseman filmed the iconic Main Branch Library on Fifth Avenue, but also at several other locations across Manhattan and the Bronx. In keeping with his style, he covers a wide spectrum of society, from affluent trustees to lower-income residents seeking services. Throughout the film, we witness scenes with the library president, Anthony Marks, as he grapples with the budget and sets priorities. It was Andrew Carnegie who invented, for this institution and I think more broadly, the idea of public-private partnership. Indeed, this institution, despite the word public in its title, is the quintessential public-private partnership. Literally, half the funding of the New York Public Library comes from the public, uh, particularly the city, and half comes from private sources, uh, including people in this room. Wiseman also films with an eclectic range of guest speakers at the library. They include philosopher Richard Dawkins, musician Patti Smith, and author Ta-Nehisi Coates. Here's a talk at the main branch with the poet Yusef Kumanyaka. I go back to Baldwin, and James Baldwin said that we have to know what's happening around us in order to know what's happening to us because we're a part of everything around us. And I think perhaps the poet is cursed to be a keen observer. observer. And there's a kind of innuendo and also is part of an extended possibility. What I mean by that is that if we are in the rhythm of the poem, we are in the emotional architecture of the poem. And language says things that are direct, but also insinuation. Kumanyaka's words are a fitting description of what Wiseman does as a keen observer. His work has as much relationship to poetry as it does to reportage. I interviewed Wiseman in August via Skype while he was taking a summer holiday in Maine. Our conversation comes round to Ex Libris, but I started by asking about the beginning of his career. In the years leading up to Titty Cut Follies, other nonfiction filmmakers had made breakthroughs in technology and techniques, that movement is sometimes called cinema verite or direct cinema. The most prolific group was Drew Associates in New York, led by Robert Drew with Richard Leacock, D.A. Pennebaker, and others. I asked Wiseman if any previous observational films had made an impression on him. He cited a lesser-known film from the Drew team, directed by James Lipscomb, called Mooney vs. Fowl, about a high school football rivalry in Miami. Coach Haywood Fowle of Edison High School. His team, the Red Raiders, favored to win. Coach Otis Mooney of Miami High School. His team, the Stinger Reeds, the underdogs. Mooney versus Fowle came out in 1961, when 16-millimeter synchronous sound was still primitive, so narration was used to fill the gaps a technique that Wiseman avoids. I asked Wiseman where he would have seen Mooney versus Fowl. I think at the Boston Public Library, uh, or, you know, the Boston, uh, either the Boston or the Cambridge Public Library, I think it was the Boston Public Library, circulated documentaries even then. 
And uh, I think I saw it there. I think they circulated, or somebody gave me a 16 mil copy of it. And uh, I, I'd seen some of the other Drew films, but I, I thought, you know, in terms of what my interest was, they were slightly, uh, there, was, there was added music and narration mixed in with observational style. And I, I, I didn't particularly, uh, th that wasn't my cup of tea. I mean, perfectly good technique if you like it. Uh, it it's not my kind of technique, that's all. It wasn't the kind of thing I was interested in, even though I hadn't yet done anything. I I I, I preferred the, uh, although, I I don't much like the term observational, either, uh, because, that's much too passive. Hmm. It, it to me, I don't know whether other people have the same association to it. It, mean, it means sitting in a corner and just watching what's going on. It, it eliminates all the different kinds of choices one has to make, uh, even during the shooting. And while they're not as explicit as the choices during the editing, there are still a lot of choices to be made. Um, so that's why I object to the word observational. I, it's it's funny to me because in the documentary fields, I, I feel people are uh, constantly debating um, different terminology, whether it's cinema verite or... Uh, observational or or the word documentary itself. Well, it's all bullshit. Uh, I mean, why, why? What's wrong with the word movie? I mean, I think I make movies. Uh, that's a, as good an omnibus word as it as exists. Uh, and uh, I, I mean, there are all these these uh, phrases: uh, fly in the wall, observational, direct cinema, as you say. But I mean. I, I don't quite understand the need for them. I mean, don't you think there is a difference between writing a script and hiring actors to, to play people uh, versus um, filming people who are acting out their real lives? Of course there's a difference, but there's also similarity. Uh, uh, but the end result is something that's projected on a screen or, you know, with, you know a, a screen is a stand-in for all the different ways of projection. Uh, as much as there are differences, there are similarities. I mean, a documentary, I mean, in, a, in my kind of movie, I'll avoid using the word documentary, you, you find the film in the editing. In, in, uh, in another kind of movie, you, you pretty much shoot what's uh, written, even though it allows for some improvisation both uh, during the, uh, the editing and, and the shooting. But the goal in each case is a dramatic narrative structure because otherwise it doesn't work. Otherwise it's not interesting to watch. Uh, you know, I can see where there might be some use for academic purposes, although I'm not sure about that even, uh, because too much, uh, the, the, the terms have to carry too much weight and they don't sustain the weight. When people think about your early films like Titty Cut Follies or High School or, or Basic Training, I think that often the strongest impressions those films leave are of critical looks uh, at those institutions, things that we see that are, that are negative and, and linger with us after we watch them. And I feel like in, in the last decade of uh, films like La Dance or at Berkeley or National Gallery, I've come away uh, with an impression 
more admiring of uh, of those institutions and the hard work that people are doing to to make them run and the challenges that they face. Do, do you see a shift like that? Well, yeah, but I don't see it as a shift of interest. I just see it as a. I I, I think it's just as important to show people doing good work and both trying and uh, achieving something as it is to show people, uh, incompetent people doing, uh, poor or damaging or disastrous work. Uh, and I, I, I am not one of those that thinks the documentary film is going to save the world. And I, I, I'm interested in showing as wide a variety of human behavior as I can. And I do think there are uh, lots of institutions and, and many people who are devoted to their work, uh, who do it extremely competently and uh, do a good job. And I think that's just as important to show uh, as it is to show uh, an incompetent psychiatrist at uh, Bridgewater, where I made Titty Gut Follies, who resembles Peter Sellers uh, doing an imitation of a psychiatrist. But I, I, I don't, I don't think I, I don't see them in these exclusive terms because I don't see myself as someone who makes expose movies. I mean, you couldn't make a movie about the Bridgewater prison where I made the follies in 1966 without showing how horrible it was. I mean, it would have been a, uh, it would have been a cheat. It would have been a lie. It was a horrible place. Similarly, I don't think you could make a movie about the university of California at Berkeley or, uh, uh, the Paris Opera Ballet, without showing how good they are, because they're 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 each in its own way is is a magnificent institution. Uh, and if I had uh, skewed the story to show only the warts, and there were, obviously there are warts in all these places, uh, then I I would have basically have done no damage to the institution, but only made a fool of myself. And in each case, uh, whether it's the earlier films or the later films, the final film has to be a report in one sense on what I found as a consequence of, in the case of Berkeley or La Danse, uh, spending 12 weeks at the place. Uh, it, it would be a cheat and it would be uh, incorrect to distort the material to fit some preconceived ideological position. I think because your early burst of uh, of films had you know such a cluster of of very flawed institutions that it uh, that it gave you a certain reputation um, early on in your career as as someone who is looking out for institutions you know where there where there were a lot of flaws to uh, to explore. Did you feel the the kind of weight of that reputation? No, no. I, I didn't feel the way of the reputation at all. I mean, and, and suppose I'd made, suppose I'd started out with at Berkeley or La Danse or National Gallery, then people would have said, well, why did I, you know, Wiseman make these films about these institutions that are functioning very well? Why, you know, why doesn't he show us more of that? But I mean, I think that misses the point, or at least what I think the point is of what I'm trying to do which is to, to have a group of films which together 
represent as wide and as diverse view of human behavior as possible. Do, do you pay attention at all to what people write about your films? Well, I read it, uh, although sometimes I pretend not to have read it, but I, <laughs> I read it. Uh, of course I read it. Uh, uh, and yeah, I read it. Sure. Does, does it ever have any uh, effect or influence on you? Well, I don't think, I don't know that it has any influence on me, but, you know, naturally I like the reviews that praise the films. I mean, uh, to that extent, I'm human, but I don't think it has any effect on the work. No, uh, because basically no one else knows the choices that are available to me. Uh, they may disagree with what they see as the final film, but I like to think, and this may sound pretentious, but there it is, I like to think that I have made the best choices that I can make based on my study of the material, usually over a period of a year. I mean, obviously, I like it when people say they like the films, but I, I don't dislike it when people say that they have some objection to the films. If, if, uh, if it's a reasoned argument, uh, I, I can learn something from that. But if it's simply pejorative uh, or dismissive, well, I mean, that, the, the person who may say that is certainly entitled to their opinion, but it's not anything that I can learn anything from. Your films are so open to each viewer's interpretation, I think more than, than other films. Do you ever uh, read something that is a completely different interpretation than anything you were ever thinking of? Well, I don't know that I've read something like that, but the, the most extreme experience I've had in that respect was when I uh, made high school. Uh, it was shown in a theater in Boston, and uh, somebody brought a woman named Louise Day Hicks to see it. Louise Day Hicks, this was in the late 60s, was a very conservative member of the Boston City Council, and I think she was, had also been on the Boston School Committee. Um, and you know, if she, if she was still alive, she would be have been sympathetic to uh, the agenda of uh, right-wing Republicans, current right-wing Republicans. And she saw high school, and, and in my view, high school is a rather sad comedy and is quite critical of the kind of education that was offered at Northeast High in Philadelphia at that time. I was surprised that she came to see the film. And when I was introduced to her afterwards, I naturally was wondering what she was going to say. And she said, Mr. Wiseman, that's a wonderful film. Can you, I would appreciate if you could tell me how we could get high schools like that in Boston. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, now you could make one argument, say that's a failure of the film. But I, I mean, apart from the comedy aspect, which I naturally liked of her response, um, I think the explanation of her response that she was on the other side of all the value issues that I was critical of. When someone criticized in the film uh, uh, a girl for wearing a skirt that was too short, she, you know, Louisa Hicks would have felt that the teacher who was making that criticism was right. When uh, the dean of discipline at high school told a, a student that they should always follow orders and do as they're told uh, without any opportunity to express a dissenting opinion, she would have felt that was right. So that 
what I, what I thought was sad and comedy and wrong, uh, her value said was okay. Um, but I, I think that's in a more general way, only an illustration of the ambiguity of reality. And I'm certainly not the first person to comment on that. We'll be back with more from Frederick Wiseman talking about his new film, Ex Libris, the New York Public Library, after the break. If you love documentary film, you'll want to mark your calendar for America's largest documentary festival, Doc NYC, taking place in New York City from November 9th to 16th. There are hundreds of films and events. If you're a filmmaker or aspiring filmmaker, don't miss Doc NYC Pro, the eight-day conference during the festival that features panels, masterclasses, and happy hour networking sessions. You can attend Doc NYC Pro with either a four-day pass or an eight-day pass. Save money with the early bird rate available until September 21st. For more information, go to docnyc.net. Frederick Wiseman filmed Ex Libris, the New York Public Library, over 12 weeks in the fall of 2015. He captures a multitude of library services, preschool classes, Braille education, computer lessons. We witness how the library functions as a lifeline for lower-income and immigrant communities. At a meeting, one Bronx librarian makes a plea for resources. There yeah. is a, an urgency around this. We cannot fail. I mean, right. if, you, if parents are coming, pleading yes. to you, I yes. can see in their eyes their need. They want their kids exactly. to be successful. Exactly. Their whole family depends on this generation. Yes. Yeah. The library cannot fail. Yeah. So is, is a library something that you have had in your mind for a while to, to approach as an institution? I guess I came up with the idea when three or four years before I made the film, I was sort of casting around for thinking about other subjects and it occurred to me a library and then I got involved in other things. And then in, in 2015, when I uh, was looking for another subject, I reminded myself of my interest in the library and uh, I contacted Anthony Marks, who's the head of the library and asked his permission to make the film. So was it always New York that was on your mind? It could have been Boston or Paris or another library? Yeah, it was always in New York uh, because, in my mind, New York Public Library, would, I mean, I, I don't know how I knew it, but it was my impression, which I think is you know, turned out, I think, to be correct when I knew more, began to learn more about it, is one of the great public libraries of the world. In America, its archival collection is... is comparable or uh, to the Library of Congress. Uh, and it's, it's you know, right up there with the Bibliothèque Nationale in France and the Library of Congress uh, and the libraries in England uh, as one of the great libraries and archives uh, of the world. So that, that was an easy choice for me. In addition, I like making movies in New York. I made a lot of movies in New York. In what ways is New York a unique backdrop? Like, how, how is it different making a film in New York versus Paris, which is another cosmopolitan city? Well, uh, the food's better in Paris. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, no, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I didn't s- 
ever deliberately set out to make a bunch of movies in New York. It just turned out that way. For, for subjects like uh, the New York Public Library or for the movie about the American Ballet Theater, well, New York, New York Public Library has, uh, has this deservedly great reputation. And New York is the center of, of uh, dance in America, and the ABT is one of the great dance companies in America. So, you know, that it's not hard to explain away that. Uh, New York is certainly the center of modeling in America, so that's why I did model in America, uh, model in New York, rather. I certainly could, could have made racetrack uh, at, at the Preakness track or in Kentucky Derby, but, you know, there, there was the Belmont in New York, so why not? I made welfare in New York because I was interested in, you know, big city welfare offices. Uh, and again, I, it, it's, I, don't, I don't know that I ever thought it through and came to the conclusion that these movies had to be, or the other movies like Welfare and Hospital had to be made in New York. I just decided instinctively that New York was the place to do it. I remember early in my career, I was working on a film for another director about uh, an animal hospital. And originally, we were going to be filming at an animal hospital in New York. And then they had a big scandal, so they wouldn't let us in. And we shifted to an animal hospital in Philadelphia. And I remember the director feeling a lot of uh, disappointment over that shift because he just felt in New York, you were going to get more characters, more, you know, voluble characters. And and I wonder if you find a, a quality uh, to the to the people who come before your camera in New York that's different than other places. No, I mean, I've made movies in 23 states. For film purposes, there there's no shortage of good characters everywhere. I mean, um, human nature is not different in New York than it is in uh, in Alabama. Mm-hmm. You, you you find different expressions of it, but you still find uh, great material. I mean, in my experience, you find great material, you know, wherever you look. Mm-hmm. You just have to hang around long enough. Well, let me ask you about that, because I think that there are many documentary filmmakers who budget their time based on where they think dramatic situations are most likely to happen. And I think that in some films, you've placed yourself um, in uh, in institutions where drama is likely to be plentiful, like law and order or or welfare. But often you're placing yourself in institutions that, you know, feel much more staged, uh, like a library where, uh, you know, showing up on any given day is not uh, likely to 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 film a crisis uh, moment for someone. And yet in your films, you do capture these kind of quiet moments of emotion in people's lives and, uh, you know, moments that are revealing or funny um, or dramatic, maybe not in a big way, maybe in a small way, and sometimes in, in a big way. So I wonder, you know, how you think of your methodology. If well, I mean, the the you know, I think of my I, every time I start a film, I think I'm going to Las Vegas, uh, in the sense that it's always a roll of the dice, because all I really know, the only judgment I've made in advance is that I I, may, I take the risk. That's the bet. 
that if I hang around at the library long enough, I'll learn something about how the library works and I'll have enough material out of which I can cut a dramatic narrative film. But beyond that, I don't really know because I, I don't do any research in the sense that I don't hang around the place uh, for a long period of time. I, you know, I spent a, a day at the library before I started shooting. The, the only time that I didn't do that was when I made the movie about the Comédie Française where I hung around for three months but I had to hang around. That was a necessity, not for research purposes, but because I had to get the permission of 23 unions and I had to meet the members of the union. Uh, they ultimately had to take a vote to allow me to make the film without, but one, to allow me to make the film and two, to make it without getting, without paying them. <laughs> uh, but that, that's the only time I've spent more than a day at a place uh, before the shooting started. So I make the, the, the judgment uh, and I take the risk that that if I stay at the place, I'll find something. But what I'm going to find, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm, uh, you know, it, it's wishful thinking in the beginning. Uh, do you kind of make a calculation at uh, the end of a day of, of shooting uh, with your cameraman, John Davey, like, well, we really got something today or we didn't? When you get a really good scene, you know it. Uh, I mean, but sometimes you're not right. Sometimes you think a scene is really great. For, for scenes like uh, uh, the serial vomiting scene in a hospital or the scene in Law and Order where the cops uh, uh, strangle a woman who's accused of prostitution, I mean, obviously, you know, you got those are good scenes and you know you're going to use them. But often, a scene you think is good in the cold light of dawn in the editing room may not have, uh, may not work or you may not have the shots to make it work or what you, the emotion that you, you felt at the time of shooting has dissipated. And when you look at it more coldly, uh, or, uh, calmly or whatever the word may be, uh, three months later, there's nothing there or it's not really very good. And, and, and the converse is true. Sometimes a sequence that I may have dismissed, you know, who cares, you know, it's just part of the rushes. And then even I may have put it aside in the initial pass, uh, editing pass through the material. When I review the material and I, I, I see how it can be used in relation to other selections that I've made. And it turns out to be quite both a useful and a good scene. So I would say, I'm giving you a long answer to the question, but sometimes you know right away and sometimes you don't know and sometimes you change your mind. So in Ex Libris, can you give an example of, of a scene where you felt you knew right away and, and also a scene where uh, it came as a surprise in the other Well, room? there's a scene toward the end of the film in a one-room library. Uh, uh, I think it's around 151st Street and, and Malcolm X Boulevard in Harlem. Uh, it's a library, one-room library and a housing project where a group of res. Uh, People in the community were, were having a meeting, and uh, the man that was the head of the uh, uh, of the Schomburg Library, the Schomburg uh, Library uh, Khalil Gibran uh, Muhammad, right, uh, was giving a talk when the residents started to talk about uh, their experience with racial discrimination. I knew I was going to use that right away. 
So McGraw-Hill, in a geography book, as you just described, uh, describes on a section immigration. And it's looking at how this diverse, very diverse country, and a, a nation that we often say of immigrants, where did its people come from? And it's pitched to a ninth grade audience of, of social studies students learning geography. And in the section that looks at the southeast corner of the United States, it's purple, meant to denote African Americans. And there's a little bubble that jumps out and says, um, between the 1500s and 1800s, um, immigrants from Africa came um, to work in the southeast part of the country. I'm paraphrasing. Literally referred to immigrants, uh, black people, as immigrant workers. Now, that was egregious enough. But the irony that in the passage referencing indentured servants to explain how uh, people of, of lower economic status from England and Australia arrived here, um, said that indentured servants came and often had to work, uh, had to do difficult work for little or no pay. Um, so in reference to the quality of their experience and their recompense for their contribution, there's actually a qualitative judgment about what happened to indentured servants and nothing uh, with reference to people of African descent. And it is hard to justify this. There are several scenes in the film that touch upon uh, the legacy of slavery and the position of African Americans um, uh, in the U.S. Uh, I mean, some of those come up naturally because of the Schomburg Center. That's uh, that's a main library in in the system and and one that you focus on. But it also comes up in other places. There's a scene at the Performing Arts Library where people are talking about the Declaration of Independence. There's a scene at the Jefferson Branch in Greenwich Village where uh, a woman is giving a lecture uh, about Marx and uh, and his views on, on U.S. slavery. I'm curious, were you conscious during filming of, uh, of, of that being a, a kind of recurring topic that was coming up? Well, I like to think I was, yeah. Uh, I mean, because I noticed it. It was a recurring topic that was coming up. And, and, and I thought those were good sequences, but that's also an ex- those were, I mean, there's the, the sequences you mentioned. There's also a lecture about the origins of the slave trade between Senegal and and, and uh, the New World, and how the uh, the rulers of Senegal uh, shipped off all the dissident priests to the New World as a way of keeping control of their kingdoms. Uh, so that the 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 issue of race and of slavery did pop up. I mean, it's, and so I used it. I mean, but that's an example of a selective choice. Those happened to be major sequences that I came across in the 12 weeks that I was there. If I'd been there another 12 weeks, I might've come across people talking about nothing but dance. I mean, it was a question of where, where I went and what was, what happened, uh, in those events that by chance, or by some deliberation on my part, I happened to attend. But when I got to the editing room, and I, I thought these were all good sequences, so I tried to weave them. They became an important part of, uh, of the dramatic structure and the story of the film. And slavery uh, is uh, not uh, an unimportant subject in American history. I guess I'm curious, you know, if as you were making it, those, you know, maybe you filmed one scene and thought, oh, that's good, and then filmed another scene. And and if you then started looking for those kinds of scenes, 
No, because I had, for instance, when I went to uh, uh, the Jefferson Market Library, I looked at at the program uh, that they had. I mean, the library publishes a monthly bulletin and the branches publish bulletins about what they're doing. And I, you know, I try to keep track of all that. And I saw there was a, an adult education class uh, that afternoon at the Jefferson Market branch. So I went because I thought, you know, one of the library does a lot of work in adult education. I had no idea what the subject of the class was going to be. Like we've seen, the Americans still think by the 1840s that there is such a possibility as an alternative future for American capitalism, that capital and labor don't have to be at odds, that the variable of land shows this third way out of this conflict. And yet here is Harney saying, no, listen, already this is a problem in the United States. The famous quote that Marx has is that labor cannot be free uh, where it's branded in black skin. This is specifically in the United States. The key here is that Marx is saying, if capitalists have the availability of both slave labor and free labor, free labor can always be undermined. And in fact, it was, because Northerners already were catching up to the fact that, you know, there's some black unskilled laborers here in the North. And whenever these workers start striking or demanding things, we can just introduce these unskilled people. It's just the same principle. So th the woman who gives that lecture is uh, pretty remarkable. I mean, she's very she's, good. She's... Yeah. I think she, I think she was a, either a recent PhD or she was a graduate student at, at either, uh, I've forgotten whether it's city college or NYU. She's very good, but I mean, but it just stumbled across it. You know, it's luck. I mean, it's it, it's it's initially luck that I happened to be there at the right time. It's not luck that I recognized it, recognized that it had value for the movie, and figured out how to use it. That's the consequences of choices that I made. The fact that I happened to be present that for that was, you know, uh, a bit lucky uh, because I saw there was an adult education class. I wanted another adult education, so I went. So this is a kind of scene that, you know, comes up intermittently in the film where we hear someone either giving a lecture or uh, having a, a public conversation and you'll cut away to audience members who either are engaged or are bored. And uh, and it's a kind of scene that um, that has come up in in other of your recent films, and certainly in at Berkeley, uh, where we're watching teachers give lectures, or in National Gallery, where we watch museum guides uh, describe um, paintings uh, to people. It's it's really fascinating to me to to watch those scenes because you see the way knowledge gets transmitted. Um, mm -hmm. And and I wonder, you know, what draws you to those kinds of scenarios? Uh, what I'm trying, it, it has to do with what I'm generally trying to do, and that is to, to show, to make movies about as many different aspects of contemporary life as I can. And uh, a university, uh, a museum, uh, a dance company, a police department, or whatever, the various subjects of the films 
are all part of that story. I mean, even if I live for 500 years, I'd never be able to get it all. But I think of the groups, not only uh, the, the films, not only individually, but also as a group of films about contemporary life. And, that, and they're related to each other. I mean, the most a comic example of how they're related to each other is um, in hospital, uh, there's a sequence where a psychiatrist calls a welfare center to aid uh, uh, a, a transvestite prostitute who's trying to get welfare. And the woman in the welfare center, whose name is Miss Hightower. Miss Hightower, I don't wish to direct any conversation towards his mother. I'm asking for the assistance of welfare. This is an emergency situation. I can possibly keep this man out of a hospital if I get assistance. You're telling me about the law and the procedure, and my supposing to tr Uh, Miss Hightower, is this a welfare center? Okay. Are you concerned with your clients and the possibility of keeping them out of a hospital? You know, Hightower is a name you don't easily forget. And, uh, and the psychiatrist is pleading with her, and she's giving him a very hard time uh, about putting this young man, giving this man welfare. And, he, and the psychiatrist gets angry with her, and Miss Hightower ultimately hangs up on him. Well, the first uh, I made hospital in 68. In, I think, in 73, I made welfare. And the first day, also in New York, and the first day I was at the welfare center, I was looking at the bulletin board, and I, I saw the name Hightower, you know, and it, it's not as common a name as Smith. Uh, uh, and so I inquired who Miss Hightower was, and she was a senior worker there. And so I asked her if I, I found out where her office was and asked her to follow her around for a day. And just by chance the day I followed her around, uh, she uh, went to her boss's office as a supplicant, where she wanted something from uh, her boss. I should have been the supervisor of general service because I had the seniority, I had the training, I've had the courses. I've been to Fordham, I've had casework one, casework two, personality and behavior one, personality and behavior two, administration and juvenile delinquency. Now that fits me for something. I haven't been just sitting on my rear, not keeping abreast of the times. I've always kept up. And I think I deserve better than, a, than the kind of fair shuffle that I've been getting here in this welfare department. Because this man is a czar, and he's going to put in who he wants to put in. Why don't you discuss That's it with all. him? If you have there, I mean, it was a link between the two movies on a, on a similar kind of issues. In the hospital, Miss Hightower was giving the psychiatrist and therefore the the patient, uh, the client, a hard time. And in welfare, we see we actually see what Miss Hightower looks like, uh, and uh, she is the supplicant uh, and not getting what she wants. Uh, another example. When I, when I made uh, Belfast, Maine, which is a movie about a small town in Maine, I was trying to, it's a town of 6,500 people uh, and covers a rather large geographical area. I, I needed something to help me know where to go. I mean, partially I looked at the newspapers and saw the events that were listed for each week. But one of the things I, I did was to go to the places that were the subjects of my previous films. 
so that in Belfast, I went to a welfare center. I went to a high school. I hung out with the police. Um, I went to a dramatic club uh, rehearsal. So by going to these places, which are common institutions in any community, it all at the same time gave me a way of structuring the film and knowing where to look for material. And while it sim- simultaneously was a reference to the, the, the other films, which were whole films on a welfare center or a hospital or a high school or a police department. When I look at your career, it, it appears very steady. Like you've had the same company, you've had the same marriage, you know, there are some critics who get your work and some who don't, but it's not like you've had a disastrous bomb or a runaway hit. Either one can derail a, a filmmaker's uh, career. Um, and I wonder if to you it feels like it's been steady or or if you see it as more peaks and valleys. No, I, I you know, it's pretty steady. I, I've been fortunate and I've been able to continue to work. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I work hard at achieving that. It's very hard to raise the money for the movies. People think it's easy for me to get money and it isn't. And that's the worst and the least interesting part of it. It hasn't, it hasn't gotten any easier over the years, but for the rest of it, I, you know, I, uh, I work. I mean, I, I, uh, I like working and I work, you know, pretty regularly and, as good a way as any to pass the time. Well, I mean, something that I think has turned out very well for you is is having your own company where you retain ownership of uh, of all your films, and and it's surprisingly uh, rare amongst uh, you know filmmakers who have a, um, you know, a, a similar span of time uh, as you. Well, I, I got screwed so badly by Grove Press, which was the original distributor of Chittagat Follies and, and high school. I had to sue them to get the money that was due me. It's a lot of phony baloney accounting. I, uh, so in 1970, I set up my own distribution company because I figured I had nothing to lose. There was a 100% margin of error because I wasn't getting any money. Uh, uh, and so at least if I hired somebody who was working for me, whatever right decisions we made, we'd get the financial, you know, we'd benefit from it. And if there were wrong decisions, uh, as there were, it was our responsibility. Uh, and so I've, I've had one uh, person working, Karen Konachek has worked with me for 37 years running the distribution and she does a terrific job. And I'm, I'm quite content with that. And I, I maintain ownership of the films, uh, and, uh, I don't know that the films have gotten as wide a distribution as they might have with uh, a regular commercial distributor, although I think they probably have. I, I don't know how to judge that. But I but I do know that uh, at least whatever income they generate, I've been able to, to have the benefit of it, I've been able to recuperate. So uh, my my last question, uh, you're, you're in your 80s now. Uh, you've told me before that you have no appetite for retirement. Well, I have no appetite for retirement. I, I, uh, you know, I don't know what I'd do with myself. I'd be lost. Uh, I like working. I mean, uh, and I, and I've seen too many people who retire who fall apart. 
instantly. I mean, uh, I, I, it's a cliche, but you know, I, I've seen many illustrations of it, and I don't, I don't know what I do with myself. I mean, I like, you know, I like editing, for example, and I, I like, you know, shooting, and I'm still, you know, still have the energy to do both. I want to thank Frederick Wiseman for talking to me. His new film, Ex Libris, The New York Public Library, is playing at the Toronto International Film Festival and opens September 13th at New York's Film Forum. Thanks to our team. Series producer, Sarah Modo. Sound mixer, Tom Micah. Web designer, Cross Strategy. And social media master, Jordan Smith. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.